And all the people said, Amen. So thankful for the opportunity to come again to this sacred desk and uh, sit down together at the gospel table. I'm reminded of the Apostle John's expression as he laid upon the breast of Jesus Christ at his table. And uh, he referred to himself in the gospel account of John as, as the one whom Jesus loved. And I pray that we'll feel his loving arms around us today as we draw near to his table and, and eat of his gospel food for a few moments today. I'd like you to open your Bibles with us to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I would like to talk to you a little while about our great confession. Our great confession. We know in a historical context that the Apostle Paul is laboring in the fields of Macedonia, Philippi being the major city of that region of the world, and he gets uh, involved in ministry and not able to turn loose as it were, and uh, he has a desire to encourage his son in the ministry, Timothy. And he's writing this first epistle to Timothy from Macedonia. And he writes in, uh, we'll, we'll read together um, verses 14 through 16, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory." I want to understand a little better with you this morning why the Apostle Paul considered these six elements so essential to the gospel record, to the testimony of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know we're living in troubled times today, but I think it's well for us to remember that there's always been tribulation in the world. Amen? There's always been wars and rumors of wars. There's always been many kinds of storms that blow in a fallen world in which we live. There are many uh, things that uh, detract God's people from the basic elements of truth that are found in the gospel. Many things that dissuade or discourage God's people in the midst of the world we live in. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the Apostle Paul is sharing with Timothy and us this morning the anchor that you and I are able to trust in. Uh, the anchor of sacred truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's unpack this a little while together this morning. 
His desire is to come and be with Timothy personally, but if he can't be with him in body, he wants to be with him in spirit. He, he's wanting to share with him what really matters and what really uh, the church can never lose sight of. And he refers to the church as the house of God. I, I love that expression, the house of God, a community of believers in covenant relationship with each other in a very a local sense. Wherever that community is located in the world, it is known as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. the house of God. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul said, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. That should be our highest premium. Our deepest relationship should be with our fellow Christians, our fellow members of the church of the living God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul reminds us that we're no longer strangers, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The household of faith, the house of God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, Paul writes, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. We need to acknowledge, first of all, that the house of God is God's possession. The house of God is that which was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you realize this morning that we are participating in a blood-bought privilege? The household of God is something that God has given us at the expense of the blood of His own Son. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus, as Pastor Nathan has reminded us already this morning, he spoke directly to them and he said, I want you to take heed unto yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made the overseers um, feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Peter reminds us of that too in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. He says, Know ye not that ye are not redeemed with such corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as a Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. So this church of God, the church of the living God, is something that is physical. It's something that is organic. It's something that is alive by virtue of God's Holy Spirit. It's something that needs to be uh, pursued and preserved. It's something that we should never take for granted. He says, I want you to know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Notice this, the pillar and the ground of the truth. He's going to share with us this morning six elements of that pillar truth. 
that foundational truth that identifies the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ in every age, in every generation. We affirm with you this morning that the church is going to be in existence somewhere in the world when Jesus Christ comes again. I'm praying that it'll be in Faulkner, Mississippi. I'm praying that that, that witness of truth will be preserved in this place until the coming of Jesus Christ. But how is that going to happen? I believe it can only happen if we hold fast to a sacred confession, our great confession. Six basic elements of that confession are listed by the pen of the Apostle Paul. And before we delve into these elements, I want you to know that in recent times, um, there has been discovered in the uh, catacombs of Rome, these elements have been written by Christians in the first and second century. And, and, and this has led many commentators to believe that these six elements that are listed by the Apostle Paul were actually a part of a hymn or a part of a, a catechism that was used in the early church to, to be foundational to the understanding of the membership of the body of Christ. He says in verse 16, without controversy, I, I want you to notice that word controversy with me just a moment. The word is homologio in the Greek language, homologio, which means a confession or to say confessedly. This is a confession. You know, we studied the London Confession of Faith in, of 1689 and, and 1644 and 46. These are important elements of basic doctrines that we hold to. And I believe the church from the apostles' time until now hold to these principles. But if you boil all of those confessions down, they will find its deepest meaning is rooted in these principles that we're going to discover this morning. This is our confession as it were, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. When we talk about a mystery, the word in the Greek is mysterion, and it means that which cannot be understood apart from divine revelation. In, a, in, in another sense, it's, it's truths that are concealed in the Old Testament, but are now revealed in the New. Uh, that which was not known in the Old Testament is now made manifest or, or revealed in the New Testament scriptures. So these six lines of this early hymn, as it were, comprise a concise summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without controversy, this is our confession. Great is the mystery of godliness, the mystery of God's manifestation through Jesus Christ, a manifestation of His righteousness, a manifestation of His redeeming uh, power, a manifestation 
of what he promised in the Old Testament that was ultimately fulfilled in the New. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law nor the prophets, but to what? Fulfill them. To accomplish what God promised in the Old Covenant to bring about in the New. So here is our great confession of faith. Let's look at these six points that Paul mentions to Timothy. First, that God was manifest in the flesh. We want to identify this point as revelation. That God Himself... Now, this is so beyond human comprehension. That the one that dwells in eternity, the the one that is eternally in the past, present, and future, all at the same time, would manifest himself and restrict himself to time. He would come from eternity into the realm of time, the limitations of time and space, that God would lay aside his um, infinitude, He would lay aside His omnipotence. He would lay aside His omnipresence. He would uh, lay aside His omniscience to take on a human form. That the eternal light would condescend to the darkness of this world. Isn't it amazing? In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, what a great mystery! Oh, what a great uh, rejoicing! It is in that context that we can understand why it's significant for us to remember the birth of Christ. To remember and honor and celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in in human form. Coming to accomplish for us what we could never do for ourselves. You see, Jesus came into the world to pay a debt He did not owe To accomplish a debt we could never pay. That God Himself would be manifest in the flesh. Revealing Himself in a human body. We speak about this as the incarnation. It is the incarnation. the, The ability of God to take on a human form. In Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. If you want to whip your Bible over there very quickly, listen to this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise, uh, he, also uh, he also himself likewise, took part of the same that through death, He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
The reason he came as a man was because he came to save men. He didn't come as a spirit to save spirits. He didn't come as an angel to save angels. He came as a man to save men. God was manifest in the flesh. This word in the Greek language is phanerao, which means to reveal or make visible. We need to acknowledge the preexistence of Christ before he was incarnate, right? Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. He, he's, not only, uh, he, he's not only the offspring of David, but he's also the root of David. He existed before David. Um, Jesus was teaching us that uh, in several uh, of his uh, discussions, in several of his discourses, he was talking about the fact that he uh, was the express image of the person of the Father. In other words, we know what the Father looks like because we know Jesus. Jesus said to Philip on one occasion, if you have seen me, remember Philip was like you and me. He said, show us the Father and that will suffice us. John 14, right? And Jesus rebuked him. He says, you know, how long have I been with you, Philip? Don't you know that if you've seen me, You've also seen the Father. Why? Because I and the Father are one. In other words, he was identifying himself as the Son of God, as the, the sent one from the Father to rescue his people. That, isn't that amazing? So Paul says you've got to start there. You, you've got to start with the incarnation. The revelation of this preexistent Savior that condescended to men of low estate and took on himself the form of a man. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 5, Restore unto me the glory that I had with thee before the world was. In other words, he's acknowledging the fact that he was with the Father even before the world was created. Amen? Do you see the power of that? And the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time, he was, Christ was made of the woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We have right to call God our Father because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Isn't that wonderful? Can't we rejoice in that this morning? God was manifest in the flesh. Now, the second point that I want to make, the first point is revelation, but the second point is declaration. Declaration. I, I want to see what Paul says we need to declare this morning. Not only that God was manifest in the flesh, but He was justified in the Spirit. Justified. It is a de declaration of righteousness. Uh, he was declared righteous. Uh, 
Now, when, when did that happen? When was uh, Jesus declared uh, to be the Son? Think about it a minute. In Matthew 3.17, when Jesus was baptized, remember the voice from heaven? What did it say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now notice, He didn't say, this is the one that's going to become my Son. He didn't say, this is the one that I, I, I have never had a relationship with, but through what He's going to do, He will be my Son. It's not that way at all. He says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, over in Matthew 17, verse 5, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus was transfigured before them and He was speaking to Elijah on one side and Moses on the other concerning His death. And Peter spoke up and said, Well, you know, it's good for us to be here. What we need to do is build three monuments or three altars. One for you, Jesus, and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because after all, Moses and Elijah are great figures of the Old Covenant, aren't they? They're great men in the Old Testament. But what did the Father say to Peter, James, and John? He said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. Hear ye Him. He declared His righteousness. He declared His sinless existence. Remember Jesus also said in John chapter 17, Satan hath come against me and found nothing in me. There was no sin element in the nature of Jesus Christ that could be tempted away from God the Father or away from the will of the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 4 verse 34, I, my meat is to do the will of my Father which has sent me and to finish His work. See, see, Jesus did not come to give salvation the best shot He could. To make His best attempt to save uh, His people. Jesus came into the world to actually and literally save His people. But how would he do that? He would do it because of his righteousness. When I'm talking about righteousness, I'm talking about perfection. Now, there might be some here this morning that think you have arrived at perfection. Uh, if, you, if you have, just hold up your hand. I'm kidding. I don't, don't do that. I don't, I don't think any of us would actually claim perfection this morning but did you know that in order for us to be accepted of the father did you know that we have to lay hold upon perfection because the father cannot look upon sin not even one sin if you if you've even had a bad thought the father knows it and he rejects that even the stars david said are unclean in His sight. Now just think about that a minute. I mean, we're talking about an infinitely perfect God who demands perfect righteousness. 
and the only one that has ever been in this earth that could be declared perfectly righteous is Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one that could offer a sacrifice that would be acceptable to a holy God. Paul says, Timothy, I don't want you to ever let the church forget that. I don't want you to ever let the church forget about the supreme revelation of a holy God in the person of His Son's incarnation and the declaration of His righteousness as being a rightness that would be acceptable to God. Even our best efforts this morning fail to satisfy the divine standard that is acceptable to God. That's why Jesus had to come, isn't it? Because we could never achieve it. The number of man stated in the book of Revelation 666, it always falls short of seven. Now, Brother Nathan uh, is good at math, and, I, I, and he can uh, tell us what the line above um, a numeral is when you're working an equation. And you have, uh, say, three numerals, 666, and you put a line over the top of the last six. That line is called infinity. In other words, it goes 666666666. It never reaches seven. It never reaches perfection. That's you and me. That's why Jesus had to come. And he, he was the one that is declared righteous Thirdly, he says that he was uh, not only uh, that God manifest in the flesh, uh, the greatest mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, declared righteous in the Spirit. Thirdly, he was seen of angels. This third point we're going to call observation. Observation. Jesus was observed by angels. It was angels that announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds, wasn't it? It was an angel named Gabriel that appeared to Joseph and Mary, right? I think it's interesting when you study the life and work of Jesus Christ, how many times angels appear. Not only at his birth, but also in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted. Remember after the temptation, God sent an angel to minister to him. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? And remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was under that weighty burden of the will of the Father. You know, uh, he was saying to the Father, if there's any other way that your people can be saved. If there's any other way that all of your elect, all of your family can be together in eternity, if there's any other way other than my suffering on a Roman cross, if there's any other solution, let it be. Let this cup pass from me. But if not, not my will, but thy will be done. That's why we know of a certainty that there is no other way that you and I could be accepted of the Father because Jesus asked for it. 
Jesus asked for it, but he submitted to the will of the Father, recognizing that that was the only way that divine justice could be forever satisfied. And that's by the death of Jesus upon the cross. He was seen of angels. He was um, observed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible says that an angel came and strengthened him there. I think that's an important part of our lesson this morning. You see, angels were created, I believe, even before the world was. Now, some would differ with me on that, but I believe in Job, the book of Job chapter 1, when it says that the sons of God rejoiced in the morning of creation. I believe he's referring to angels. They rejoiced at the work of God in creation. So here you have angels that are witnesses of all human history. So it's important that these same angels would be observing the redemptive plan of God in His Son. So they're going to be a, an integral part of His ministry in His life. Not only did the angels come to Him in the Garden of Gethsemane, but remember with me that it was angels that announced the fact that He had risen from the dead. Remember when, when Mary came to the tomb? Remember when the women came to... Uh, 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 to, to put uh, uh, fragrance upon the, the burial clothes of Christ and they came to the tomb and the stone was rolled away. Do you remember the angels asked the question, why seek ye the living? I mean, why, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is what? He is risen. That was an angelic message. The angels of God announced that message. And, and so, so it's, it's just intriguing to me to see the significance of angels observing not only the, the birth and the life of Jesus and His ministry, but also His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And it didn't even stop there, did it? In, in Acts chapter 1, we read where uh, angels uh, were present in the ascension of Christ when He ascended up into glory. He was observed of angels. And Brother Don, I want you to know this morning that those angels are His servants. They're ministering to Him this morning. Those same angels... Uh, to me, that's just a, a, an interesting aspect of the angelical witness of the redemptive work of God in Christ. So you see, he was seen of angels. He was observed. So the first point is he's in revelation. And the second point is he's uh, in declaration. And the third point is he's in observation by the very angels of God in heaven. But then the fourth point is that we have a proclamation. We have a proclamation this morning. He was preached unto the Gentiles. That word is karuks. Karuks in the Greek tongue. And it means to preach as a herald. To herald. To, to, to announce as it were. 
Most of you recognize what a herald is or was, in the, especially back in those days. Before a king or a prominent ruler would come into a village or a city, there would always be a herald. There would always be someone to announce his coming. In fact, um, in American uh, politics, did you know that when the President of the United States enters into a room, there's always a herald? Uh, a herald that says, uh, please stand for the President of the United States. That's a herald. That's what the word karuks means. Jesus was heralded not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Is that important? You should think it's important this morning because you're a Gentile. You and I are not Jews. I believe we're spiritual Jews, but we're not natural Jews. We're not natural descendants of Abraham. So it's important for us to understand that in the promise and in the uh, redemptive uh, purposes of God... He intended to save Gentiles. And if you're not happy about that this morning, um, something's wrong with you. If that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. You see, you were on God's mind before you ever knew Him. Before you ever wanted to serve Him. He had you in His mind. And He determined to send his message the saving message of Jesus Christ to you unworthy Gentiles now to me that's a mighty important verse that's a mighty important promise when we think about it I, I think about it in the context of the great commission in Matthew 28 19 and 20 Jesus didn't say, go uh, only into Judea and only speak to the Jewish people. He said in Matthew uh, uh, 28, verse 19, go into all the world and preach the gospel to what? Every creature, right? Preach the gospel not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And tell them the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us to underscore that this morning. Again, I think about what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the proclamation of the good news. Um, going back to the language of the Old Testament again, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is the first messianic promise. Remember, after Adam and Eve had sinned, Jesus comes to the woman... And, and what's intriguing to me, uh, by the way, this is also called the Proto-Evangelo. It is the first gospel, the first appearance of the messianic promise. 
that's found in the Bible, and that's Genesis uh, 3, verse 15. And notice what he said. Uh, he said that uh, there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That, that seed of the woman is a prophecy concerning Christ, right? And what he would do is crush the head of the serpent. If you want to kill a poisonous snake, uh, don't try to kill him by cutting off his tail. You kill him by cutting off his head. I, as a little boy growing up in New Mexico, one of the first lessons I learned, because there was a lot of rattlesnakes, uh, was that when you kill a snake, you cut off his head and bury it. Because the poison uh, of a snake is found in its head. And you don't want to leave that on the ground where somebody could step on it and be poisoned. So when you cut off the head, you bury it. Well, Jesus Christ did that on the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent. In other words, Satan cannot have power over you. Now, there's, uh, there's some difference of opinion on this point, but I'm going to say what I believe about it. I do believe that God's people can be tempted by Satan. They can be oppressed by Satan. They can be persecuted by Satan. But they can never be indwelt by Satan. I don't believe that can happen. I don't believe that a child of God, born of the Spirit, can have within his life, within his heart, both God and Satan. They can't, it's oil and water. They can't mix. That's why uh, I, I believe that Judas was not elect. I don't believe Jesus was a child of grace because the Bible says plainly that Satan went into him. He, he possessed him. And uh, that demonic possession was evidence that he was not a child of God. So when I, when I think about this in terms of Christ being proclaimed to the Gentiles, I, I, I think about this in, in those terms. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is presenting Satan, the reality of Satan, as a defeated foe. You know, I, how did it affect you when you read that article this week about uh, the state capital of Iowa had a statue of Satan? Did you read? Did anybody read about that? Had a put up a statue of Satan. I don't know how that affects you, but that grieves me to my very soul that any such a thing could be done in America. And brothers and sisters, I, I'm just telling you that our nation today has lost its way. Our nation today has become very unthankful and ungrateful to the God that gave us this nation. And, and I believe that the true gospel is what can rescue this nation. Reminding us of the uh, sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be about. That's what we need to be talking to our neighbors about and, and uh, voicing our opposition to anything that would 
give glory to Satan at all. We need to preach the gospel. We need to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ just as we were taught to do in the Word. So we're looking at revelation, declaration, observation, and proclamation, but also, if you'll allow me to title my fifth point, celebration. Celebration. Preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. Oh, I tell you, brethren, sisters, the greatest miracle of all is when someone that is born dead in trespasses and in sin is quickened by the power of the Holy Spirit of God and given eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a miracle. It, it, it causes us to celebrate. It causes us to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of His glory, doesn't it? That to me is what Paul is saying is a significant identifying uh, aspect or element of the true church. We're celebrating in worship and in service to the living God. I think that is encapsulated in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When Jesus said, uh, you know, Jesus said to the disciples, Tarry ye in Jerusalem till ye be endued with power from on high. So here they are in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ, and they're waiting. They're waiting for the promise of the Spirit. And Jesus said, And you shall be witnesses unto me. I, 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 what kind of a witness are you? What, when people look at your life, do they see someone celebrating? Or someone that's practicing for the next funeral? Or, or someone that reflects an attitude of uh, depriving? Uh, by that, what I'm talking about is um, when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ to others, are we happy about it? You know, the world around us thinks that uh, Christians can't have fun. You're not supposed to have fun. Because if you're having fun, you're sinning. Well, that, that's not true. I tell you, it is a, a, a joy to serve the Lord. It, 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 it's a joy to come to the house of God. It's a joy to sit in communion with the people of God. It, it's a joy. It's something that we can celebrate. And did you know that when we assemble ourselves in this capacity, we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ? That's why it's a joyful thing. It's a great and joyful thing. And Paul says this is very important. We need to celebrate as those who have by grace believed the reality of Jesus Christ. Yeah, believed on in the world. That's a miracle. All right, so we have celebration. 
And then, then the sixth point, my last point this morning, I'm going to just title Ascension. Ascension. Jesus Christ ascended up on high. And what does that mean? That means that God accepted His sacrifice on your behalf. That means that God the Father was pleased with Him. He accepted um, the sacrifice for sin that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. I want you to turn your Bible back very quickly this morning to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, when he's talking about Christ, he, say, he says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Notice he didn't say he was made as a sinful man, but made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now watch verse 9. Wherefore, because of that, God also hath what? Highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name you see my friends this in my mind is uh one of the greatest uh accolades one of the greatest achievements that you and i can lay hold upon we are serving this morning an ascended savior that's why when I see a cross with a human form on it, it grieves my heart. Because I don't believe that Christ is still on the cross. I don't believe this morning that Christ is still in the grave. You know, we can go over uh, to, to Palestine. We can go over to Israel today. And did you know you, you can visit the tomb of uh, Joseph? You can visit the tomb of um, David. You, you can visit the tomb of some of the great kings in Israel's history. But you can't go over there and find a sign that says, Here lies the bones of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He's not there. He's ascended into glory. And you know what he's doing today? He's making intercession for you and me. He's praying for you and me. You, you, you know, you're going through some struggles. You're going through some battles. You're, you're going through some hard times, or you're fixing to. But did you know you don't have to do that alone? I want to close our remarks this morning by asking you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Please go there quickly. Hebrews chapter 7. You know, it's speaking particularly about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Here's our ascended Savior. And he says in verse 24, But this man, 
because he continues ever, that means he'll never die again. He'll never disappear. He'll never vacate his throne. He's ruling today. And we can rejoice in that. Here he is, the ascended Savior. He hath an unchangeable priesthood. There'll never be another one like Jesus. And what is he doing? Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Do you see why this is our great confession? This is the greatest confession that we could ever make. And these six elements are part of that confession. We acknowledge and believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ, in His declaration through the gospel, in the observation made by angels above. And those angels are going to return with Him one day in great glory. We believe in the proclamation of His gospel, His good news, that Jesus is a successful Savior, not one that tried to do the best He could and failed, but Jesus came into the world to save His people, and He will never lose one of them. And we are called to celebration of that fact in our worship and in our service. And we believe in the ascended Savior that has made us a promise that one day He's going to come again. I know that Christmas season, there's a lot of pagan elements that grieve us. And we need to be careful not to, not to be a part of that. But I'm thankful I live in a country where we can observe the birth of Christ. Where we can celebrate His birth and the great gift that He is to us. I'm thankful for that. And I don't want the Grinch to pinch the joy that you should feel at Christmas time. But I want you to embrace these six elements, maybe in a clearer way, maybe in a better way than you ever have before, and be able to share these things with those outside the church. I believe that's what he's called us to do. Because this of all confessions is the greatest confession. Thank you for your kind attention this morning. God bless you.